Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, but tonight we're here for Ponyo Giannopoulos. Um, Ponyo's writing has appeared in various publications including Northwest Review, Tin House, The Rattling Wall, The Brooklyn Rail, Nerve, and Five Chapters. Um, he's a recipient of the New York Foundation for the Arts Fellowship for Nonfiction Literature and has been in th anthologies Cooking and Stealing, um, Tin House Nonfiction Reader, The Bastard on the Couch, The Encyclopedia of Exes. Um, and uh, he also had a really great uh, piece in Salon yesterday um, about Philip Roth that he said that he wrote like just in a matter of minutes over the weekend, right? <laughs> um, so please, he's here this evening with his, with his new book, A Familiar Beast. It's a novella which was launched by um, Novella. And, um, and so please welcome Panyo Ginopoulos. Thank you. Can you hear me? All right. I blew my voice out in that boy band for about three years. <clears throat> Sorry, half of what I say is not true. I want to be, but not that half. <clears throat> okay, um, so before I read, I was going to first thank everyone for coming tonight. I appreciate it. Allison, you live nearby, so you get a little thanks. But for everyone who drove here for an hour and a half, it was really sweet of you, and I, I appreciate it. And um, the book is so small. <laughs> it's so cute. I mean, I know it's the purpose, is to be a little novella. But I had a little bit of like a, well, I just came out of the pool moment when I, <laughs> when I first saw it. I was like, oh my god. Um, so, uh, you know, I can write bigger. I write bigger books and longer sentences. This one just happens to be economical. Okay, and I'm having serious title envy of fuck yeah, menswear. <clears throat> so for those of you who haven't read the book, I don't want to give away too much. Um, so I'll, I'll, you know what I'll do is I'll just read the first few pages and then I'm going to skip ahead and give like a one sentence kind of catch up. Okay. Sharon got the Harrisons, the Paulsons, the Davids, and the Martins. She got Genevieve and Jonathan Rich, 
as well as Jonathan's kid sister, Willow, who, visiting to help with the new baby, judged Marcus's behavior with the pitiless morality of a single woman in her early 20s, for whom the many disappointments, compromises, and banal deceptions of a real marriage are as unimaginable as the atmospheric convolutions of the moons of Saturn. After some uncertainty, Sharon secured the Rosses, despite Ted having been one of Marcus's college housemates in the mid-90s. And though she lost the Galens, Marcus lost them too, so she was willing to let them go. Of all the friends they had shared as a couple over the years, only Alice Viles was willing to entertain Marcus. But Alice's brother had gone to prison for insider trading seven months earlier, and so she was obligated, Marcus reasoned, to carry on about second chances and forgiveness. She didn't actually like him. A realization Marcus had one day when he stopped by Alice's house to take her up on the open lunch invitation she had extended at the organic supermarket. Well, hello there, she announced. And in the courteous wrinkle of her voice, he heard the disapproval and embarrassment that haunted every interaction these days. Recently disgraced, Marcus found it hard not to catch a secret note of disdain in people's voices, an inevitable, humiliating discovery. Wherever he turned, people leaked their derision, like potted plants overfilled by amateur gardeners. It was the reason that Marcus had begun to spend more and more time online lately, the reason that he would agree to fly to North Carolina to visit a friend he hadn't seen in 15 years, and when there, the reason he would consider, for the first time in his life, tramping out into the wilderness with a gun to kill anything that crossed his path. Marcus had met Edgar at Pembleton, a small, second-tier New England prep school that included a handful of academically gifted local children as a kind of rueful apology to the community for inflicting upon it 250 disorderly rich kids. Though they dabbled with minor gestures of defiance, overall Marcus and Edgar bowed to the influence of their middle-class backgrounds. They were the offspring of families that stressed industry, seriousness, and generational aspiration. And in their mutual concession to obedience, they formed a workable friendship. It was a relationship based more on demographic similitude than any innate enthusiasm, however, and after Pembleton ended and each boy went his way on to college and careers and cities, neither made much of an effort to stay in touch. If it weren't for the encroaching ubiquity of social networking websites, ravenous algorithms that ran on nostalgia and misplaced curiosity, Marcus doubted they would have ever spoken again. But the world had changed. As had they, Marcus thought, when an unfamiliar man in his mid-thirties, calling Marcus's name, climbed out of a pickup truck in front of baggage claim. Edgar had lost much of his dark hair. It receded from his temples in a widow's peak, and this alteration, combined with the thickening of his once petite nose and the strange adult bigness of his face in general, rendered him momentarily unrecognizable. He was at once both the boy and not the boy that Marcus remembered, and consequently Marcus felt warring sensations of affection and timidity. You must be freezing, Edgar said, and clubbed Marcus's thin scalloped shoulder. Where's your suitcase? We'll throw it in the back. Just this, Marcus said, raising his carry-on bag. Great, Edgar announced with cheerful senselessness. He motioned for Marcus to climb into the cab of the truck. It was a massive vehicle, brawny and burnished, with a bolted sideboard to step on while mounting and dismounting. Marcus placed his bag between them on the seat and discreetly brought his palms close to the heating vents. They eased onto Airport Boulevard. If you're hungry, say the word. We can stop on the way, Edgar said. I'm not hungry. Marcus observed Edgar take the exit for I-40 East without much interest. Ordinarily, he liked to watch where he was going at all times, compulsively tracking both the route and the direction. 
Sharon used to tease him that if he ever had an affair, it would be with a woman who voiced the GPS. They drove for 20 minutes, discussing the particulars of Marcus's flight from San Jose with a pleasant lack of commitment. When they moved on to the hoary state of air travel in general, Edgar perked up. Last month, American charged me 50 bucks for an aisle seat. The company paid for it, but the principal of the thing, he said, and turned onto a side road. A mile and a half later, Edgar steered the truck through a wrought iron gate that led to two dozen freshly developed houses. Marcus explained that they were all custom though they were easy to confuse, bearing the resemblance of handsome siblings. Edgar pulled into the driveway of the second-to-last house and switched off the ignition. Here we are. That's a lot of house, Marcus said, in a tone somewhere between admiration and despondency. When I bought it, I didn't think I'd be living in it alone. Marcus climbed out of the truck. He slung his bag over his shoulder while the garage door screamed at him. Edgar ducked inside, brushing past a blue hatchback wedged in tight among cans of plaster, primer, and house paint. Marcus followed behind him, turning his body 90 degrees and scooting sideways to get by the vehicle. As he passed the passenger side, Marcus glanced through the window and noticed that the seat was missing. What happened to your car, he said. Edgar stared at the space for a second, frowning slightly. Nothing. He crouched beside a stack of 50-pound pallets of corn arranged like overlapping scales. Hey, can you carry one of these for me? I do it myself, but I torqued my back yesterday. Where do you need it? The yard. I'll show you where. Marcus squatted, and scooping up the wide, flat bag of feed, he straightened his legs. It wasn't too heavy, but it was awkwardly shaped, and Marcus took clumsy steps. His toes turned out for balance, and his weight rolled back on his heels. Edgar directed him outside, to the yard. It was a long walk to the back of the property. Marcus felt his forearms beginning to tire from the strange grip, and he tried to move faster, but the new pace only made it harder to control. The bag shifted against him as he ran, thrashing in his arms like a child demanding to be let down. When he reached the fence, Edgar gestured for Marcus to drop it anywhere. It landed with a deadened thump on the grass. Marcus bent over at the waist and took quick, broken breaths. I shouldn't give him the whole thing, Edgar said. Already they've been going through 100 pounds of this stuff a week. But I figure, with a guest in the house. He reached up to his belt and slid a folded knife out from its sheath. He offered it to Marcus. After a moment of hesitation, Marcus took the knife. The rosewood handle was warm and smooth in his palm. He unfolded the blade with a curl of his thumb, feeling the shift in balance, the new extended danger. It was a longer blade than he had expected, pale and serrated, featuring a curve as discreet and elegant as the line of a woman's neck as she arches to show you her indifference. Marcus kneeled and slit the pallet open. A trickle of dried corn kernels spilled out along the ruptured center line. He prodded the pallet with the toe of his sneaker, nudging out the contents. Not like that, Edgar said, motioning for the knife. He took it back and, dropping to one knee, plunged the blade into the corner of the pallet and dragged it across the diagonal. He repeated the cut on the other side. Then he stood and drove the steel toe of his boot into the pallet hard enough to make the vivisected brown body hop. Minutes later, the deer arrived to investigate the gift. Marcus saw them through the glass windows of the dining room, five ghostly shapes coming out of the woods, gently blurring across the dark landscape. He stopped listening to Edgar in the middle of the tour and waited to see what the animals would do. They glanced over toward the bright house, intuitively sensing a connection to the creatures inside, or perhaps, Marcus amended, operating simply and consistently out of fear. After a moment, whatever unspoken indicator of safety was communicated, and as one, they bent their slim auburn necks and began to eat the corn. For all the meals I don't cook, Marcus heard Edgar say. 
gesturing to the formidable kitchen stocked with an eight burner restaurant quality gas stove, a prep station with its own sink, and a giddy abundance of granite. The ceiling stood nearly 15 feet high and just below it, impossible to reach without a ladder and tremendous resolve nested a series of little glowing wooden boxes. Within each box rested a vase or a glass bowl. Catching Marcus's gaze, Edgar said, that's the thing about women. They do strange shit like stick a bowl in a box and shine a light on it. Things you just would never think to do. <laughs> Marcus showered and slipped on a clean t-shirt. He wore the same jeans he'd worn on the flight. They were the only pants he had brought, and when he held them up to his face, he detected a hazy, sweet chemical odor, as if a flight attendant had sprayed his legs with benzene or ozone or some other carcinogen while Marcus negotiated sleep. Then he went downstairs to meet Edgar, who was standing in the pantry, eating Fig Newtons out of the package. It was almost nine o'clock, Edgar explained, and most of the restaurants would be closed now. It's all families around here. But he knew a bar where they serve burgers. That sounds great, Marcus said, trying to marshal enthusiasm, leading with the expression of a desired sentiment and hoping that the sensation might obediently follow. It was a strategy that he'd used for most of his life, and it had failed him innumerable times. He didn't know what it was that tied him to it, what held him fast to this magical idea, even now, after all the pain it had caused, that a feeling could be prearranged, ordered in advance, and then calmly anticipated. One day, surely, it would arrive, like a phone call from a long-absent lover, confiding, I miss you. Where are you? Come home. Please come home. Okay, I'm going to jump ahead. So they go out for drinks. Uh, yeah, it's guy talk. And then they get the idea, mostly from Edgar, to go out to a bar and see if they can meet some women. Harriet and Marianne were not the most beautiful women in attendance that evening at Jack's Black Smile, the boxy, noisy, brick-walled bar on Wallaby Street, but they were certainly the kindest, since unlike the other women with whom Edgar attempted a conversation, Harriet and Marianne did not immediately walk away. As Edgar teased out their names and drink preferences, Marcus looked on with unexpected admiration for his friend. In high school, Edgar had possessed the self-assurance and charm of a lint catcher. At least some of the changes of the last 15 years had been for the better. Let's see, rum and coke for Marianne and a Coors Light for Harriet, Edgar said. Other way around, Harriet said. She was a tall woman in her mid-30s, with broad shoulders and a perky, upright blonde ponytail. When she smiled, her large pink gums flashed with the delighted overexposure of an exhibitionist. Harriet laughed loudly and happily, though not easily. In this, she expertly walked the line. She was neither too discerning to be unkind, nor too lenient to be unsatisfying. When Marcus learned that she was an elementary school teacher, he felt a pang of envy for Harriet's students, who, besides having their entire lives ahead of them, also had this friendly, robust woman to model their desires after. I like women with men's names. I think it's endearing, Edgar said, handing the tumbler with its plump quarter-lime garnish to Harriet. It's not a man's name, Marianne said. Harry, Edgar said. No one calls her Harry, Marianne said. Her features were small and dark, her eyes owlishly hooded, and the sight of her thin lips on the bottle made Marcus think inexplicably of a plug of black licorice. Marcus, did you know that Marianne is a stewardess? Maybe you're on the same flight, Edgar said. Flight attendant, Marianne said. Marcus flew in from San Jose this afternoon. Is that where you came from? I came from Dallas. That would have been a crazy coincidence, Edgar said. Crazy, Marianne said, and pulled on her beer. Do you still like flying after all this time? I think I'd lose interest, Edgar said. She hates it, Harriet volunteered. 
I like flying fine, Marianne said. It's the passengers I could do without. They can be pretty bad, huh? Edgar said. Tell them about the woman who put her baby up in the overhead bin. Her baby, Harriet shrieked, laughing. She didn't know any better, Marianne said. It was her first time on an airplane. Who's never been on an airplane, Edgar said, shaking his head. What else? You must have a ton of stories. Marianne didn't reply. Marcus could feel her apathy. It was as prominent and visceral as rage. And though long ago he would have moved toward the bright, sunlit delight of Harriet, after all that had happened to him recently, he felt a kinship to the obscure, ensnared dimness of Marianne. For the first time since arriving at the bar, he spoke. What's the worst thing you've ever done to a passenger? She turned to look at him. Whether gauge, gauging his seriousness or simply registering his presence, Marcus couldn't tell. There has to be something, Marcus said. I'm not the vengeful type. You put sour milk in that guy's coffee, Harriet sang. Right, something like that, Marianne said. Sour, sour milk. Edgar laughed and pulled Harriet toward the jukebox. Come on, help me pick some songs. If I have to listen to I Heard It Through the Grapevine, grapevine one more time, I'll burn this fucking place down. And what's the worst thing a passenger ever did to you, Marcus said. He could see Edgar and Harriet negotiating the crowd toward the glass and metal stump of the jukebox, and then, upon reaching it, their bodies converging to address it. I don't know, Marion said. There has to be something. I don't remember. You're saying no passenger ever did anything bad to you, Marcus said? No, I'm saying I don't remember what the worst thing is. How is that possible, Marcus said. He had come to believe that the worst fault was the one thing we always remembered. And confronted with this discrepancy, he didn't know whether to be grateful or skeptical. He motioned to the bartender. The chalkboard posted a drink special, a beer and a shot for $5. And he ordered two. So, how do you know Harriet? Look, I appreciate the effort, Marianne said, rolling the new silver bottle between her palms, but you don't have to do this. Do what? I understand. You're playing wingman for your friend. Well, I don't need to be distracted. I'm capable of entertaining myself. I'm not trying to distract you, Marcus said. Right, of course not. She downed the shot, then raised the bottle of beer to the sweet black stain of her lips. After a while, she stopped and wiped her mouth with the back of her hand. You find me deeply, deeply interesting, she said. Hey, I don't know what I said that offended you, Marianne. That's it. Use my name. It's more sincere. But you seem to be having a conversation that I'm not having. I'm sorry, she said. You're a good guy, okay? You're a great guy. The world is full of great guys. She tapped him on the arm once, twice, and then walked away. Okay, that's all I'm reading tonight, because otherwise I'll read the entire book, because it's so little, <laughs> so I have to keep it short. I do want to mention one thing quickly, is when I was first writing, you know, you never know where a story's going to take, or at least I never do. I outline it, and then I totally ignore the outline. And I was writing this, and I got to the part, which I skipped, where um, Marx and Edgar are at this the, the sort of tavern eating burgers, and it was just two dudes talking, which is fucking boring, right? And, you know, one of the guys was talking about being a volunteer fireman, and I bring in another guy, like, that's going to fix the fix the problem, like, let's bring a third guy. And it's just like three guys, and I'm just so bored, and I'm thinking, oh, I had such a good start, and I fucked it up, like, God, you know, what's wrong with you? And then, and so I struggled with it for like three, four days. I just couldn't get through it, and I just kept like, oh, if I write the dialogue funnier, it'll be great. But it didn't matter, all these little zingers, and no one, who gives a shit? And then suddenly, I had this creepy moment, which I skipped, where... 
Edgar gets excited and goes, oh, let's go meet some women. I was like, whoa, where'd that guy come from? And suddenly, to me, I mean, I don't know what it's like for you who have read it, but as soon as Harriet and Marianne entered the story, like, that's when I gave a shit. That's when I thought, okay, what's going, you know, what's going to happen? And not because of a potential romance, per se, but because it's, um, first of all, you don't have all these he pronouns, but also it just became interesting. And I, I really liked Marianne, and she was such she really was not intended. I mean, I was like Marcus, where I, I didn't think she mattered. You know, I thought he was playing weight. She's just like the friend of the girl that matters in the story. And to me, she became this integral part of the story. So I just mentioned that because I'm up here and I have the microphone. <laughs> and no, because I, I know a lot, a lot of you are my friends, a lot of you are writers, and I'm sure you've experienced some of that. So let me confirm that. Okay. All right. Uh, Q&A. Anyone have any questions? Yes. Um, you know, like, what exactly is the difference? Like, what makes a novella a novella and a, you know, like a short story? Sure. Like, what is that? Well, I should probably have my editor answer this one. Dina Juros right here. Um, you know, I don't, I mean, it's sort of arbitrary, right? It's it's a length. I think according to novella, it's, you know, 10,000 to 40,000 is a, is a novella. I, I think of it... I call that a YA novel. <laughs> <laughs> Vampires. Um... I guess I think of it as sort of there's three, there's, it's all arbitrary anyway, but there's short stories, there's novellas, and there's novels. And for me, I, it's more of an emotional reaction, not even length. I think of a short story as like just a really good first date. You know, you have a good time, you learn something, you kind of get thrown around, you have a good, it's a, maybe you get some sex, who knows. It's a first date. And I think of a novel as like a marriage. Like you are in there, and you're getting dirty and nasty and like ripping your heart out. And then a novella is that, is that like, that four or five month relationship that you never quite get over and you still talk to your therapist. It's, it's just, it's like, it's a really, it's a, you get the emotional breadth of a marriage, but you get that like economy and brevity of, of a short story. And you can, well, in the case of mine, you can probably read it in one sitting or maybe two. But yeah, I mean, I love, as far as novella books, um, they do all books this size. It's not just mine. And, I just feel like I stepped out of a swimming pool. Okay, um, but yeah, I, I love the model. They do this launch week where the first week you can get a little signed copy and the ebook along with it, which I think is a great idea, and a signed postcard. And and they're just, I don't know, they look cool, right? Well, they're perfect for shoplifting. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> a joke. Okay. <laughs> Dina, do you want to add anything to that? Did I miss something? Okay. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I was, um, I guess for me it's a question of payoff. You know, I feel like if you're going to stick around for an entire novel, you better make it worth my time. You know, I got I to gotta really build it and there's got to be, and not, not even so much like a lyrical crescendo, although that's great, like 100 Years of Solitude, which just like blows you away and you fall off the couch. But, you know, there has to be movement in this, and I feel like with a novella, I wanted, it was, there was a point where, Actually, when I was I expanded this originally from a short story, which is about ten thousand words. I added about three thousand words to it, and I brought in you know two other characters, and there was a point where I thought, okay, am I just going to open this wide open and really follow it? And I I I didn't. I kind of shut the door and I thought, okay, this has to be a novella. I can't, you know, it's that proportion of like what's happening now versus what trauma are you dealing with in the past? Yeah, there's a cat right there. <laughs> 
Not a question. Just saying. Um, you know, I'll, since there's not a lot of questions, I will just share one thing, um, which I always thought was an interesting little, an old Greek myth, which no one, this is, I'm like a hipster Greek myth, like you haven't heard this one, I knew this one before you. But it was, it was weirdly enough, it was kind of the genesis of the story, and I heard it 15 years ago, and it stuck with me since. And it was about this king who was really, really rich. And I guess he lived on an island because he gets in a boat at some point. But he was very, very rich, and he, was, he loved it, right? He's having a good time. He's like, Romney. He's like, this is great. I'm rich. This is no, no problems. And, um, but he knew, because this is ancient Greece, that if you're you know, hubris, right? If you're too proud, if you just don't do enough uh, humility for the gods, they will, they will take you down for it. So you know, one of his advisors says, you're going to have to do something. You know, this is a problem. So he goes, okay. So the next morning he gets up and he takes his most valuable pearl, this big fat pearl, and he goes on a boat with a fisherman and he fly, and he swim, and he takes the boat out. And then while there, he pretends to drop it in the ocean. He's like, oh no. And he makes a big show of crying. Like, oh, my, my pearl, my most beautiful pearl. And then feeling like, okay, well done. He takes the boat back, you know, in time for lunch. No big deal. And he thinks he's, you know, he's pulled this off. So then that night at dinner, he's feeling great. You know, things are good. He's still the super rich king. It's just one pearl. He sits down to dinner, and the, and the royal chef brings out this beautiful grilled fish that they caught that day, this giant, and they slit it open, and inside the belly is the pearl. And it's the gods like, fuck you. You're not, you cannot do this. And for me, that's a lot of what the story is about, is this, this idea we have that we can orchestrate our own redemption. And that we can sort of manipulate things. And not to say that we can't create our own redemption, because I think we can, but it's this, this desire to sort of control things and to move things and to make things work in a certain way. And I wanted to tie that into the idea of hunting, where a character goes hunting and he's, he's going to use it, he's going to consciously use it as his metaphor for, I'm going to redeem myself. And you can't, you sort of can't force the issue. So that, that story always stuck with me, even though it's more of a fisherman Greek king story than a, than a hunter in North Carolina. And there was, I tried to put that in the book. <laughs> oh, wow, did that just sink like a stone. <laughs> I'm, I'm working on a story collection. I'm actually currently working on a short story. I was just telling some friends, which is really fun, about a guy who sort of dates his friend's mom. And it's, um, it's awkward. <laughs> That one's also not, that one's purely fiction. I want to be clear about that. <laughs> I love fiction. If I wrote my own stuff, it would be really boring. So I, I like to make it make it up. But that should be coming out, I think, next summer. I'm a really, despite the, the flurry of Philip Roth writing in one day, I'm a really slow writer. So I, that's the littleness of this book. Yeah. I do. Um, you may have recognized yourself. <laughs> Um, yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I, I, things obviously get changed a lot. You know, my, my brother-in-law, for example, is a big hunter. So when I went to visit him for Thanksgiving years ago, that's when I had an original idea to set something in this world of hunting. Even though he's this neurologist, he's very sort of like white collar, he likes to kill deer. But fine, that's cool. Um, but like even the line, like I heard it through the grapevine. I mean, that specifically was I, when I was in college and had no money, and uh, I used to play that song in the bar when I, we play pool, because it was the longest song on the jukebox. And, but I'd play it like four times in a row, and I would watch people get more and more pissed. I'm like, they fucking hate the guy who played it. I'm not going to tell them it's me. So, you know, it's like a little detail I throw in, but, you know, that was me who played it. Sorry, I probably shouldn't have added that. And little lines here and there. Sometimes I'll write them down. Has anyone ever busted you? For that. For that. <laughs> 
No, no, not for, thank God, not for that. Because that's so humiliating, too. That's not like a cool, like, sorry. That's pretty bad. All right, I think that's probably good. Um, I have no more Greek anecdotes I can think of. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.